Hello and welcome to the Adventure Podcast. This podcast is about helping listeners learn from and meditate on our sermons from anywhere at any time. Thanks for joining and let's get started. Near the end of Jesus' ministry, something happened that set the stage in more ways than one for what God was getting ready to do on the cross. We find it there in John 11. Uh, You've got it there in your listening guide. Those of you who are online, uh, you can look that up. Maybe you've got it on your phone. Uh, You can walk through that. We're just going to kind of use that as a pattern to walk through a little bit here. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're definitely going to make some big jumps going through chapter 11 just for time and brevity. Uh, But we, we get the... We get the story set here. So there's a guy named Lazarus. He's sick. He lives in Bethany uh, with his sisters, Mary and Martha. And uh, the two sisters send word to Jesus. Jesus is off. We think he's probably several days away uh, from there. And uh, they say, look, Lord, your dear friend is sick. In other words, what are they saying? We need you. Show up. Come back like your dear friend sick. And it's not just like he's got a cold, like we think this is going to be terminal. All right? So we need you back here. We've got multiple engagement points with Mary and Martha uh, in, in the Gospels. It, it's likely their house is one where Jesus has stayed before. Uh, Bethany's only about two miles outside of Jerusalem, so we think he probably used that. When he would go into Jerusalem for Passover, he would probably stay with them. Uh, and that was kind of his staging point. So they're close friends. You know, what, what do you do when you get word that a close friend is like on death's door and, you know, the sisters call you and say, hey, we need you to come down. Does that mean you hang out for a little while? No, generally that means we want you here right now. But Jesus stayed for a little bit. Verses 5 through 7. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. And we'll, we'll look in later here. The, the disciples, are they're all standing around scratching their heads for two days going, what are you doing, Jesus? Why are we hanging out here? Finally, he looks, looks at his disciples. He says, all right, let's go back to Judea. Let's jump down to verse 20. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have what? He wouldn't have died, right? Underline that part. Underline that last one there. Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would have died. Because this is encapsulating everything we're going to see in this whole story. So Mary then finds out. She rushes out to Jesus. Verse 32, when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, what? Lord, if you'd only been here. He wouldn't have died, right? So we see that same theme again, right? When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, it says within within him a deep anger welled up and he was deeply troubled. What's Jesus mad at here? For uh, well over a thousand years, uh, theologians have been trying to figure that out and arguing about what it was. Uh, Was it the fact that he's mad at death, which he knows was not a part of his original plan, and he's seeing that play out in front of him? He's feeling those emotions himself. He's seeing other people go through that. Is it the grief that he's experiencing with them? Personally, I think there are a whole bunch of those those things that are all wrapped up in there. It's not just a one one thing. It's, It's kind of both and, right? There's a bunch of things going on there. Verse 34 Jesus goes, he says, where have you put him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And so they take him out to the tomb. And it says, Jesus wept. 
and there were some people standing nearby and they said, see how much he loved him. But look at what some of the other people that were around him said. They said, this man healed a blind man, which we'll talk about him in a little bit. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? So they're saying the same thing too. There's this thread that emerges in this story and we see it from the disciples. We see it from Mary and Martha. We even see it from the crowd who are surrounding and, and watching all this go down. And they're asking this question, God, where were you? Where were you? I thought you loved him. Why didn't you show up? Why are you letting your people that you love suffer? It's not a new question. And again, it's one even people around Jesus asked even while he was walking around and doing his ministry. You know, we've talked through a lot of questions over the past 10 weeks and I, I'm sure some of these questions that you've really connected with and some of them, I had somebody after the, uh, the science one when we were talking through that stuff and she just walked up to me and she went, whew. She's like, it just went over my head. That, some of you, I'm sure some of these you haven't connected totally with. I, this one, everybody connects with. There's nobody who hasn't honestly asked this question at some point, right? We've all struggled with it. And I'll be honest, I've met a number of people through the years who've walked away from a belief in a loving creator because suffering had showed up in their life and they couldn't resolve this. So this is a question I understand. Let's take it apart a little bit. How could a loving God, late great Tina Turner, she sang it, right? What's love got to do, got to do with it? Guess, right? You guys know the song, right? What's love but a secondhand emotion? Let's respond to that. I would tell you love has everything to do with this question that we're wrestling with. You know, if our faith, if our faith was founded uh, on the belief that God doesn't really care about anybody, then we wouldn't be having this discussion, would we? I mean, when people suffered in ancient Rome, this wasn't a big deal, right? It, it wasn't a stretch to think that Zeus was ticked off at somebody. Nobody ever made the claim that Baal or, or Thor were inherently loving gods. If you're a humanist, and you believe we're all just meat puppets and, and, and there is really no good or evil, there's no higher power, there's no heaven or hell, there's no God. We still suffer, but there's no universe to care. So why lament suffering? It, it carries with it no meaning, it just is, like we just are. The interesting thing about this question is, there's some presuppositions to it. It presupposes that there is good to begin with and it presupposes a God who is good and a God who cares. Luz has everything to do with this question, but I'd suggest to you that, that Tina's second question, the one about love being a second-hand emotion, is also a major part of the struggle that, that we have with this. And that song is one of the most cynical views of love I think I've ever heard. And as screwed up as her understanding about love is, uh, I don't think most people define it much better than she does. Love may be one of the most misunderstood, misdefined words in the English lexicon. And what's most tragic is that love is one of the most important and fundamental concepts that humanity needs. You know, in Hebrew and Greek, the, uh, the two primary uh, languages of scripture, uh, there's multiple words and different applications and concepts for love. In English, we just have the one word. It has to cover everything. 
It covers French fries and it covers steaks and it covers my kid and it covers my wife and it covers my grandparents and like it, it's supposed to cover Valentine's Day everything. Like that's not very good. And I think that's part of why it's so misused and abused and, and poorly understood. You know, if you look back to how Hebrew and Greek use the word love, the different expressions they have of it, it's interesting because some of those are based on social context. So you got phileo, and that's, that's love to a friend. Um, you got eros, which is kind of more that romantic sexual love. Uh, th- those are all social context kind of ways of defining love. Agape, though, godly love, isn't defined by context. It actually is defined by how it exists and how it operates. It is, it is generally looked at as something that is, that is always there. It's, it's loving kindness. It, it endures through everything. That's kind of the idea of agape or hesed in, in, in Hebrew. So scripture lays out this concept of what the deepest, most authentic version of love is. 1 John 4.19 defines it very simply this way. It just says, we love because he first loved us. In other words, no pretext, no anything, just love was. It existed even before. On the surface, this question seems really simple. How could a loving God allow suffering? But let me ask you this, as you consider that question, when you use the word love in that question, how do you mean it? How are you defining love? We're going to come back to this in a minute, but let's keep teasing this question out here. How can a loving God allow? This is one of the paradoxes of the question. God is omnipotent. We got a a few different omni words for God, omniscience. Omnipotent simply means that he is all powerful. He's totally 100% in control. So how could he allow bad things to happen, right? If we believe that God is really 100% in control of everything, then how are bad things that happen not his fault? Interesting. There's a few things that are foundational to our understanding of God that that help you work through that and know how to to move through this. So all-powerful means a few things about God. First and foremost, all-powerful means that God has the power to create. Psalm 33, 6 says it this way. The Lord merely spoke and the heavens were created. He breathed the word and all the stars were born. Like when we say he's all-powerful, if he can create everything that we know and that we see and that we experience, then we would say that is way more powerful than us, right? He is all-powerful because he's created everything that we know. That also means that he can work both inside of as well as outside of his creation. He's, he's not tied. He made the laws of physics, so if he wants to bend them, he can because he's all-powerful. All-powerful also means that God has the ability to keep his word. Numbers eleven twenty three. God talks to Moses, and Moses is kind of doubting him a little bit. And God says, all right, has my arm lost its power? Now you'll see whether or not my word comes true. And Titus says, the God who cannot lie promised. One of the things that we believe about God is that he has the power to keep his promises. We make lots of promises and lots of times we don't always follow through. Sometimes we make promises with the best of intentions and yet we don't have the ability to pull those off, right? 
God can do that. If God promises something, that promise is good all day, every day. Now, sometimes we wonder if they're good because we don't always see them fulfill him within our expectations, maybe within our time frame or the way that we wanted to see him uh, keep his promise, but that doesn't mean that he won't or that he isn't. But the third thing that all-powerful means is that he has the ability to limit himself. God has the ability to self-discipline. If any of these are miraculous, man, I think this is the one. I ate donut holes this morning. I didn't even want them. Like, I just smelled them. Just, you just kind of wander over to the sugar. And Anyway, 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. One of the buzzwords in the medical field um, is the word autonomy. So in current usage, the word autonomy uh, just means that it carries the idea that, that patients have the right to make up their own minds on the quality of life that they want to lead, what kind of treatments or care that they would allow. Often in theology, we use the term free will in a similar way. Free will is the ability that God provides to us to make choices that may or may not fall in line with his will, to live in relationship with him or choose to not, to reject him wholeheartedly. We can do that because he's allowed that. Free will is a requirement of authentic love. What is God's desire? Well, we just read it. Look back at 2 Peter 3. What did it say? His desire is that nobody should be cut off from him, but while that's his desire, he still gives us the freedom, the autonomy, the free will to make our choice about who we will follow. Am I going to follow me? Is my life going to be about me and what I want, or is it going to be dedicated to him and what my creator wants? Galatians 6, 7-8 says this. Don't be misled. You can't mock the justice of God. You'll always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature, but those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. There's a choice to be made in there. God in love says, all right, I'm not going to make you automatons. I'm not going to make you robots. I'm going to allow you space. True love allows that kind of space. But here's what we want. We want autonomy to do whatever we want without experiencing anything unpleasant, right? I do. Right? We want freedom with no responsibility or consequences. We want God to leave us alone, but step in to save us when things are going south. You can't have autonomy and a nanny at the same time. Two don't go together. But the truest forms of love respect people's boundaries. One of the foundational concepts of personal boundaries, we teach through, I know we got some boundary books on the other side of the wall behind the soundboard there. Fantastic book, really just gives a framework for some things that most of us weren't taught very well because a lot of us, our parents weren't taught it. I mean, it just, it's kind of been one of those generational cycles. Fantastic stuff in there. But one of the core concepts of boundaries is respecting the autonomy of both yourself and the people that you're in relationship with. Why? Because you can't have love without free will. Love isn't codependent, nor is it enabling, nor is it controlling. Right? And so that's what we want from God. We don't want to be controlled by God until things go bad. Then we want God to control. 
that's not a loving relationship. So allowing in terms of our choices is actually an element of love. But is allowing hard stuff that we didn't choose ourselves still possible from a loving God? And so that kind of leads us to that full question, right? How could a loving God allow so much suffering? A couple of things as we tackle this. Man, I do not believe that God enjoys us hurting. Like any parent, scripture tells us that he hurts when we hurt. Why did Jesus weep in that passage that we just read from John? When Lazarus is dead and he, he sees the grief with Mary and Martha and all the people that are around, all of the family, why does he weep too? Because he hurts when we hurt. Over and over, the people in God's story um, make statements like David did in Psalm 34, 18, where he writes, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. So when our first parents, Adam and Eve, um, God, God loved them. God walked with them. He provided boundaries to keep them from hurt, but ultimately he allowed them to make their own decisions. He does the same thing for us. Adam and Eve went outside of the boundaries and sin entered in and creation was affected with the consequence of that. And that brings us to a brutal reality that none of us like. And that is, is that there's, a, there's a, a cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering. We know this to be true on the most basic level, right? Because we've all done some things that we knew we shouldn't do. They were wrong and we suffered the consequences from those. That's the first reality about suffering in this world. You go, why is there so much suffering in the world? Well, part of it is I caused some of it. So do you. Reason why there's suffering in the world is because to some degree we make our own, we manufacture it. Some of the suffering we experience comes from our own bad choices. 17 years ago, um, as the housing market in Florida continued to blow up, and we were told to rent our apartment was gonna go up to $1,800 a month, we, uh, we decided, all right, it's finally time to buy a house. And so we decided we were gonna make that happen. And we did. In the process of doing that, there were multiple roadblocks. I'll never forget, I mean, I, I remember it well to this day, at one point looking at my wife and she just goes, you know, with all these things that keep popping up, do you think maybe God's saying, don't buy this house, maybe we should wait? And I said, no, we're buying this house. And we did. It's a dream we had. From a worldly investment standpoint, made all the sense in the world. We were actually buying two lots, like everything about it looked like a smart decision until just a few months later when the housing market crashed in a way, by the way, you guys up here have no idea about. Our house went from being worth about $220,000 to $40,000 in less than six months. Our bank went bankrupt. Now, did God blow up the housing market? make our bank go bankrupt to, to teach me personally a lesson? Did he destroy all of Florida just to teach me a lesson? I think he destroyed Florida because Florida's Florida. <laughs> I'd have to be pretty arrogant to think that God like manufactured the thing that went across literally our entire country. Like, that, that would be very arrogant for me to think that God was doing that all just so, for me, right? Just to either punish me or to teach me a lesson. No, I, I, I believe that I believe God was, was trying to keep me from experiencing the pain that we've experienced for the last 15 years because of it. 
I could cry out, God, why did you let that happen? You should have stopped me. He tried. (laughs) Why didn't you force me to make the right choice, right? But that's not how a loving God operates. It was my choice. You've made some decisions that, that made your life hard. You got some scars and bruises to show from it. Second thing is sometimes I experience other people's consequences. That's part of the other way, right? I mean, if I make my bad choices, you make your bad choices. Reality is sometimes that spills over. You know, an alternative way to think about this is sometimes other people suffer because of my bad choices. It's another way to think about this. What is the mantra of self-destructive behavior? Leave me alone. I'm not hurting anybody, but... Yeah, you've, you've been there too. Is that ever true? Like in the history of the world, has that ever been true? Why? Because God designed us to be in relationship with family, with community, with people around us. And guess what? All of our decisions have collateral consequences. Good decisions bless people and bad decisions extend the brokenness. Could be a drunk driver, could be that careless medical practitioner, it could be that angry teacher, could be that greedy business person, could be that control-hungry politician, could be your broken parent, could be your hurt friend, could be your lost child. Sometimes we experience the brokenness of others. That's part of where suffering comes into our world from. But then there's another thing. There's a global relationship between sin and suffering. Look at Romans chapter uh, 8, verses 20 through 21. It says, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Do you realize that 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 choice that, that brought sin in didn't just affect us, there was carryover. Because of the way that God created creation, our sin has affected literally everything. And you go, well, where, where does cancer come in? Where does sickness come in? Where does the derecho come from? Well, I, I think in a general sense, it's here. So what is God doing in the midst of all this? Because that's the other piece. Well, okay, well, maybe he's loving, but is he just aloof? Is he twiddling his thumbs, not paying attention to all the hurt down here? Like, okay, Jesus wept, but what did he do? Lazarus still died, right? Well, let me, let me give you maybe a little different question as we start to turn a corner here. What would a loving God care most about? Just for a minute, instead of talking about suffering in terms of why is God not in it? Why isn't God taking care of it for me? Maybe we need to ask this question. What would a loving God care most about? You know, in my opinion, C.S. Lewis is one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century. I, I love reading his essays. I love reading his stuff. I usually have to read every, every line about five times just to make sure I'm actually getting what he's putting down on paper. He's a guy who, interestingly, he spent his early life as an atheist, and then he dealt with some serious moments of personal struggle. Uh, Much of the writing he did about pain, and he he wrote some great thoughts and essays and treatises on pain and how God comes into that pain and how he deals with that. A lot of that... um, That stemmed from watching his wife have terminal cancer. She went through cancer for two years. He cared for her. He was there in the midst of watching that all happen. Then he watched her pass because of it. And he wrote 
this in his work, The Problem of Pain. He wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It was his belief that while God didn't desire any of us to suffer, he didn't, he didn't create this originally with suffering present. That wasn't his, what he wanted, but he still has often used the consequence of sin to ultimate good anyway because he is all-powerful. Scripture puts it this way, in all things, God is working out good for those who love him. But how? You remember that, that common theme, that common question, that thread that we found uh, from the disciples and from Mary and Martha and from Lazarus, uh, or from the crowd to Jesus and that, that story about Lazarus in the beginning? There's another thread that's in there. And it's kind of an answer to, to each of them. When the disciples question him, look at uh, John 11, verses 4 through 6. It said, Jesus talked to him. He said, look, guys, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. It happened for the glory of God, so the Son of God will receive glory from this. This was before he even went to Bethany. He gets to Bethany, and, uh, and, he, and he's, he's talking about it. He tells him, he says, Lazarus is dead for your sakes. I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you're really going to believe. So when we get to Bethany, you're going to see something happen, and it's going to be an opportunity for you to learn and to grow and to see something different. You're going you're to believe something different about me then than you do right now. Right after Martha tells Jesus that she knows he could have prevented this, she tells him this, verse 22, even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. All right, there's an element of faith there. Jesus comes back to her in verse 25 and he says this, all right, if you really believe that, let me tell you what you should believe. I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? She goes, look, I, I believe you are who you say you are, but in her mind, it's about Lazarus being sick. You could heal him. I know you could have done that. Even now, I know that you could do that if he was here and he was sick. And he goes, let me, let me change your channel just a little bit. Let me give you this truth. Do you believe this? When the crowd openly asked why he didn't show up, Jesus tells him this in verse 40. Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? And so they rolled the stone aside and then Jesus looked up to heaven and he said this, he said it out loud. This is how we know what he said. Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. In the midst of the pain, perhaps God is doing something even bigger than the symptoms of sin. See, we get caught up. Suffering is the symptom of sin. We see it, the sickness, the, the, the death, all, the, all of those pieces. Those are the pieces where we look and we hurt, and God knows that we hurt, but those are the ones that we get focused in on, those symptoms to this bigger thing that is sin. Just before his encounter with Lazarus, John records another encounter with a different guy. There's a blind man, and the disciples kind of point them out to Jesus and they ask Jesus a question which was a common question of the day. Ancient Judaism understood the, the cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering but they limited it to the first two categories that we talked about. In other words, when they looked at somebody who was in a bad position they looked at it kind of like Job's wife and said, alright, either you screwed up or like your parents screwed up somebody screwed up here and God's punishing somebody. They looked at the blind man. They could only perceive God laying out blame. Jesus 
Whose fault is this guy's blindness? But God wasn't punishing the man. Jesus tells him, look, his blindness isn't a punishment. Jesus expands their context. Look at verse three in John nine. It wasn't because of his sins or his parents' sin, Jesus answered. This happened, so what? So the power of God could be seen in him. He redirects them to see the opportunity in the man for God to show his love and his grace and his power. And most of all, God's primary mission for Jesus. Listen, Jesus, this is going to be hard for some of you to hear. Jesus didn't come to heal all the sick. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before. Jesus showed up, Jesus lived, and Jesus was crucified, and there were still a lot of sick people in Israel, even more so outside of Israel. He didn't heal every person in the world while he was walking around with them. Jesus didn't come to upend the political or social or economic injustices of the day. That's what they thought a Messiah was going to come and do. They thought he was going to do it with an army. And Jesus said, you got me mixed up with somebody else. This is not really what the Messiah was sent to do. In healing the blind man, Jesus showed him that not only did he have the power to deal with the blindness, the symptom of sin, but he also had the power to deal with the the big thing, the root cause, the sin that was underlying all of it. See, Jesus came to take care of the root cause of all the symptoms that hurt and plague us, the global consequence of sin, the problem that plagues every single one of us every day of our life. And this thread runs through John's gospel, and later he kind of sums it up in a letter to the, the early church. Look at 1 John 4, verses 8 through 10. He writes and says, God is love, and this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Listen. God is doing something even bigger than just alleviating the symptoms of sin that we see. Romans 5.12, when Adam sinned, sin entered into the world. And Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Let's jump to verse 17. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace we act, how can an all-powerful God not care? He does care. He is caring. He, he, he's working a plan out. Even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Look, let me just say it real simply this way. God cares about your suffering. And he cares about the suffering of your kids and your friends and your grandparents and your mom and your dad and everybody. He cares about that suffering, but he cares most about alleviating the root of where that suffering comes from. Again, this is a hard reality for some of us to accept because the suffering around us is real and I'm not trying to make light of it and I'm not saying it's not important. But the victory Jesus brings goes beyond just the suffering in this world. That's why, John, that's why Jesus said this to his disciples in John 16, 33. I've told you this so that you'll have peace by being united to me. Listen to this. The world will make you suffer. This broken world will bring suffering. That's what Jesus is saying. There is going to be suffering in this broken world. But, 
does he say? Be brave, because I've defeated the world. Again, that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't care. God has called us to be his hands and his feet to deal with it, but we can't let suffering get us distracted from the ultimate answer to the problem. So how do we help, right? If we're gonna be disciples, if we're gonna follow Jesus into this, how do we be a part of it? Let me just give you a few real quick suggestions. First and foremost, we need to share in in people's suffering. I'm not always great at that. My mercy gifts aren't extremely high in the way we normally think of mercy gifts. Sometimes I, I just walk through a room, I don't see stuff that my wife sees and perceives. Be the first one to admit it. That's why God put me with her, I think. The gospels give us a clear example of a Messiah who shared in the suffering of the world around him both in his life with them, even more so as he took that suffering to the cross. Part of loving our neighbor means sharing the suffering that we each struggle with. Look at Galatians 6.2. Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. Want to love your neighbor? Part of that means sharing in their suffering and sharing their burdens. Second thing is, I need to remember that God didn't call me to save this world, but to make disciples. Again, I I think this is a hard reality for some because I think, to be real honest, I think humanism has crept its way into a lot of believers' theology, and we think it's our job to make make this world perfect. We're trying to make this it, and the reality is that's not what Jesus called us to do. This is what Jesus called us to do. It's in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. He said, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore go and do what? Make disciples. He didn't say go save the earth. He, he didn't say try to, try to make everything just. Because the reality is we don't have the authority to do that. We can't pull that off. That, and, and that's not what he's called us to. What he did say is I'm going to do that. I'll deal with that part. What you guys need to do, let people know about me. Shine my light in. I'll do the part that you can't do. I'll take that on. That's where my authority comes in. That's why I'm all powerful. I'll take care of that part. You go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all the commands that I've given you. That's what we're called to. Not saying we shouldn't try to do our best to make things better. I'm just saying... Don't get distracted from what we've actually been called to, which is making disciples. The third thing that we can do in suffering, we can live out a a faith that shines hope beyond this existence. Any of you know the name uh, Admiral Jim Stockdale? Is that familiar to anybody? Any history buffs? Yeah, of course Ron does. He's got a pretty incredible story. Before becoming an admiral, uh, he was imprisoned in, uh, in, in Vietnam. He's a POW in the Hanoi Hilton. Matter of fact, one of his things, he was the longest prisoner in the Hanoi Hilton of anybody who was ever there. He was tortured over 20 times during his eight-year imprisonment. Um, if you ever read about that, it's just absolutely incredible. Jim Collins did an interview with him, and one of the questions he asked him, it's an interesting question, he goes, so who didn't make it out? You were in there the longest. You saw prisoners come and go. Who didn't make it out? And uh, Stockdale replied, that's easy, the optimists. The optimists were the one who didn't make it out. And it kind of took 
took him back. So Jim said, what do you mean by that? And so he replied, he said, the optimists, they're the ones who said we're going to be out by Christmas and Christmas would come and go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And then Easter would come and go. And, and then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. And he goes, they died of a broken heart. And then he said this. He said, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. If you read through the letters in the New Testament, you will find over and over that the early church lived in this amazingly hard place. Their faith led them to more struggles in life. Their faith led them to more human suffering. That was their existence. Persecution came because of their faith. Imprisonment came because of their faith. Death for many came because of their faith. By the way, there's a lot of Christians who are still going through that today. How did the early church survive that? It is not natural for an organization to grow when it's being hunted down. And yet that's the pattern of the church, not just in the New Testament, but in countries like China and India and some African countries where being a believer of Jesus means life is actually going to be harder. It's going to cause you more human suffering. <laughs> Why? There's something out there even more important than our immediate life experience. That's hope. And that's what Admiral Jim Stockdale was talking about. It's what the earliest Christians, the believers I've met in India and other places hang on to. That is a lot of what the book of Revelation is about. It's a reminder that suffering in this life isn't meaningless and it isn't final because this isn't the end goal. Look at Revelation 21, three through five. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He'll live with them and they'll be his people. God himself will be with them and he'll wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain and all these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. I never want to make light of your suffering or, or anyone else's suffering. I just want to offer this perspective. What if the God who is bigger than all of this can actually bring opportunity even out of the hurts that he never designed us to experience? What if God is working through the suffering towards something even bigger? Perhaps that is an all-powerful God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for loving us. I thank you for loving us even before we loved you in response. I thank you for loving us in the midst of our own struggles, in the midst of our own brokenness, and even in the midst of our choice at times to walk away from you and do what we want to do rather than live the way you designed us to live. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in Jesus we see that you really do care about our suffering. But most of all, we thank you that in Jesus we can see that you are working out a plan to not just deal with the symptoms, the suffering that we see that are the symptoms of sin, but Father, you came to deal with the root cause. And Father, sometimes it's really hard to be patient in this world. But Father, I just pray that you'd give us perspective 
to recognize that this world is not the end goal. This world is not the final thing. And what happens here is not worthless. It's not meaningless. Father, even the hurt here is something that you can use, not that you cause it, but that because you're all powerful, you can use it. Father, we love you, and we thank you for taking care of sin on the cross in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray together. Amen.